Good morning, Baptist Church of Westchester. My name is Katie Jackson. I serve here as the Director of Youth Ministry, and I am so excited to be here this morning as we celebrate the third Sunday of Advent. Today we continue our study of the genealogy of Jesus, looking at what the inclusion of each of the four women says about our God. Let us begin in Matthew with a reading of the genealogy of Jesus. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father, father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. What does the inclusion of these women say about Jesus? Last week we learned about Rahab, and this week, the second to last week before we get to Mary, mother of Jesus himself, we will learn about Ruth. We will consider what does the inclusion of Ruth tell us about Jesus and his good news. Last week, we talked about what we have been called and what we have called others. This week, I want us to consider what have we been seen as? How have we seen others? When I was in college, I interned in DC, and I sometimes had the opportunity to attend meetings that were attended by DC bigwigs, the type of people before then that I had typically only seen in front of backdrops on TV. And at one session, at the end, the honored guest asked if anyone had any questions. I raised my hand, but so did the person seated behind me. The guest called on the girl behind me. I thought he called on me. They did not. And I began to tell the Vice President of the United States that my name was Katie and I was from Westchester, totally and completely unprovoked. I thought he had seen me. He didn't. I think we've all had moments like this, times where we thought someone saw us, that we were noticed, but we weren't. Or maybe there have been times we think we know how someone sees us, but their view is wrong. I'm sure, too, there have also been times that we thought we saw or knew who or what someone was and were misguided. Let us consider these times as we learn today about Ruth. Today we have the opportunity to dive into the book of Ruth, one of only two books in the Bible that are named for women. The book of Ruth is often cited at wedding ceremonies, one of the handful or so of verses that is picked out of a little top wedding Bible verses booklets to be recited at the joyous ceremony where spouses are joined together in the eyes of God. But to only consider the your people will be my people, your God, my God part, in my view, is to shortchange the beautiful book. The book of Ruth is a story of epic tensions, mourning and dancing, famine and feast, loss and birth, meekness, and the start of an incredible lineage that would lead straight to the birth of Jesus Christ. I am a theater kid, and one of the things I've learned through my involvement in productions of varying quality is the importance of stories. The stories we tell about our world matter. The stories we tell about ourselves matter. Narratively speaking, the book of Ruth is a pretty simple one. Four main acts spread over the course of just a couple of pages. But as we move through the scripture today, I want to encourage you not just to listen to the words, but consider that this book is just one facet in the greatest story ever written, that of Jesus Christ and his love for us. Let us begin in Ruth 1. 
In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So we are exactly two seconds into our story, but I want to stop. Let's look at the names of the people in this narrative. Naomi, our matriarch, her name means sweet. Though she was cast out of her homeland due to famine, she still has her family. Her son's names, let's look at those too. Their names, Malon and Kilion. Last week, we talked a lot about names, and they matter here too. Their names come from two root words that mean to be sick and to become weak and to die. Time passes in our story, and Naomi's husband and her sons too tragically die, leaving Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, her daughter-in-laws, devastated. Three women left, bound together, not sharing a similar nationality or ethnicity, but bound together in grief. Again, the importance of names comes up. Naomi's name gives us insight into her character, and the names given to her sons foretell their tragic ends. I don't want us to ever be so legalistic as to ignore the incredible artistry in the Bible. In this greatest story ever told, so too, God uses names as an incredible storytelling device. Let us continue. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing them with food, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. With no husband or sons to provide for her, Naomi decided to set off for her homeland, which had once again become fruitful. But she told her daughters-in-law to go back to their mother's houses and said, May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another. The women left together, and Orpah agreed to stay in her homeland and listen to her mother-in-law. But Ruth didn't. Ruth saw the love that her mother-in-law had had for God and the mercy God had showed to his people by delivering them from famine. And she said, and here's the snippet we often hear in weddings, we heard it in mine, don't urge you, don't urge me to leave you or turn my back to you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even the death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her along. So they went on the journey, which in and of itself must have been a trial of faith. It is not an easy one. Today, immigration is not easy, and it was not then either. Crossing mountains. I think there's a slide up there that shows the terrain. It's pretty rough. And when they arrived back to Bethlehem, I'm sure, in a state of disarray and weariness, some people recognized Naomi, kind of. Scripture says, some of the women said, is this really Naomi? Which, rude. (laughs) But Naomi said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. So do not call me Naomi. The Lord has spoken against me. Who among us hasn't had a season where we felt anything like ourselves anymore? Physically, mentally, spiritually, just totally and completely depleted. And I want to point out, too, that Naomi's new moniker isn't the first time we've heard the word Mara in the Bible. In the book of Exodus, the Israelites encounter the well at Mara, but find the well depleted, filled with nothing but bitter water. And it isn't until God sees the suffering of his people, and Moses is given a law granted to him by God, 
and it's thrown into the water, and from there the Israelites can take refuge in the waters. God saw them and delivered them. How devastating it is in this story to see a person literally named for sweetness see herself as bitter. But God can redeem things and make them sweet again. So let's continue and see how God delivers this story's Mara from her bitterness. So they arrived at the beginning of the barley harvest, and we can already see things are starting to change. They have some signs of the good fortune to come. We can imagine the blessing it would be, not only to arrive at such a fruitful land at the end of such a long journey, but also to have some sign of life after a time of such loss. So they get there, and they still need to support themselves, but luckily it's harvest time, and that's a busy time. And so Ruth goes, and she decides she's just going to go into the fields and try to pick up any fallen grain she can. This practice is called gleaning. We see it throughout the Bible. And it was a way for people, widows and the poor, to still make a way for themselves. What she didn't realize, though, was that she happened into the field of a man named Boaz, who was of the same family as her father-in-law. He was known as their family redeemer. And essentially, Jewish law stated that if a man fell on hard times or died, the family redeemer would buy his land and would either keep it until the man was back on his feet or, in the event of a death, would watch over the man's family, too. Family redeemers cover you. They pay your debts. They help you stay in the family. They make a way for you, just as his descendant Jesus did for us all, saying, I know your debts. I see your pain. I've got you. So Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and went entered into his field. And Ruth was there gleaning and toiling away. It's backbreaking work. She took like one break all day. And eventually Boaz notices her and is kind of like, what's her deal? And one of his harvesters explains that she is a Moabite woman who came into town with Naomi and shared how hard she had worked all day long. And at this point, Boaz is impressed with her and feels a need to protect her, which likely was part duty as he was a relative of her father-in-law's, but maybe something more. He approaches her and he says, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water the men have filled. And I want to make a real quick point here. The word daughter is translated from a Hebrew word meaning that's translated, and the word is bath, which is a term of endearment, typically from someone of a higher social standing or someone who was just older. It doesn't mean that he sees her as a child or as his literal daughter, which I'm grateful for, given how the rest of the story goes. Um, but this is a term of endearment, and used towards Ruth, it clues us into how Boaz, right from the jump, he sees her as endeared, as beloved. But Ruth is kind of bewildered by this. And the scripture says, at this, she turned and bowed her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Now let's think about this for a second. She is a widow in a foreign land that doesn't have a shared religion or culture, not to even mention that the Moabite king at one point had ordered a curse to be put upon the Israelites, so some bad blood there too. Her husband is dead, her father-in-law is dead, her brother-in-law is dead too. Ruth appears, at least, to be alone, a foreigner without prospects. And yet she chose to be in this land in the hopes that God would deliver her from her suffering. And Boaz tells her, I have been told all about what you have been doing for your mother-in-law since the time of your husband's death, how you left your father and mother and your homeland, and you came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. 
May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth's reputation preceded her. Boaz saw what she did, what she did in the quiet, in the solitude, in her mourning. He saw her. What a blessing and what beauty after such a long journey to a foreign land. For her to be told, I see you for who you truly are, not for your station in life, not as a widow, but for who you really are, the beautifully and fearfully made woman who is out here breaking her back every single day for her chosen family, for her chosen God, in a land that is not her own. Ruth chooses God, for better or for worse. We don't know why Ruth chose to follow Naomi. The scriptures don't say. We don't know if it's because of how Naomi and Elimelech led their household and had raised Ruth's husband, or if it was because of her husband's love for the God of Israel. We don't know if it was a choice born out of her grief and her need to make meaning of her loss. We just don't know. Why have many of us made the choice to follow God? We all sit here in church today for all kinds of reasons. But whatever that is, we do have the opportunity to choose God and be welcomed into his eternal family. Just as God chose us on the first day when he made light into darkness, chose us as he hung on the cross, chosen as when he one day comes again. But after their interaction in the field that day, to get back to our story, Boaz does what he can to make Ruth's life a little easier, instructing his harvesters to throw a little extra grain down so she doesn't have to work so hard to glean, and he shares bread with her. So she gets home to her mother-in-law and tells Naomi about the man she met. And of course, Naomi is over the moon, and she's like, yes, Boaz is the best. (laughs) And she tells Ruth to go to Boaz that night and lay at his feet, and so she does. And Boaz wakes up and is like, whoa, there's a lady here. And, uh, And Ruth says, yes, like, you're our family redeemer. And Boaz says, yes, I am the family redeemer, but there's also another man who is more closely related to your father in law, so I have to see if he wants to fulfill his duty. But if he doesn't want to take care of you and the land, I absolutely will. So eventually, Boaz goes and he gets the green light to go forth and acquire Limelech's property and also gains the ability to marry Ruth. And so Boaz and Ruth are wed. And the scripture says, the elders and all the people at the gates said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And they did. And Ruth bore a son named Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David. I think there is so much beauty in that all of this came from the simple yet incredibly brave choice to follow the God of Israel and to continue in the steadfast work of following him daily. How often are we just heads down, just trying to make it through the day, trying to do a good job at work, make sure our kids are cared for, that the wheels of our lives keep churning? And how often, too, are we divided, not seeing each other really for who we are, but as the labels we put on ourselves, have put on others, But God doesn't see those divides. He seizes us. He chose us. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are welcomed. We are brought into his family, no longer a stranger, no longer a foreigner, but by his blood and his blood alone. Seen. So what does the inclusion of Ruth say about Jesus? I think it speaks to how Jesus sees us. He chooses us in every minute of every day, in the midst of every joy and every triumph and every mistake. 
And what does it say about what we are called to do as the church? We are called to love each other, to hold up the momentous and the monotonous of our days as an offering to God. It's all worship. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This Christmas season, let's give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord, not to focus on being seen in the hopes of being noticed by the world, but let's take each day and let's savor it, offering each day of our lives as an opportunity to honor God and each other as image bearers. The Bible is filled with acts of epic proportions, Abraham shepherding his people to Canaan, Noah onboarding every living creature into that boat, Moses leading the Israelites through the parting of the Red Sea, all the result of the choice to follow God. Though we may not personally bring triumph to an entire people or be shepherding anything at all, we too can act in ways that are seen, that are valuable to God. They're not always exciting, caring for a person in need, refraining from saying something you really want to say, but no, it does not need to be said. It's not exciting, but neither are our lives most of the time. Actions don't need to be mighty to be valuable. Throughout the Bible, we see a lot of mighty acts perpetrated by even mightier characters. And yet, too, here, in the direct line of Jesus, we see a woman, an otherwise ordinary person, a widow, mourning, in a foreign land, collecting some fallen grain, collecting that which has been discarded by others. And how alike is she to her great, 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 great times 30-some generations grandson? Our God, Jesus, who came to save the lost, the discarded, and what true, fantastical, hopeful good news is that. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for the lessons you've given us. Help us to be like Ruth, royal to you. Help us to live each day as you are watching and helping us, because you are. We love you. We praise you. Amen.